You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, gentle listener, this is Moxie from Slightly Less Far in the Past. Before we begin the show, I want to remind you that my next project, Science with Savannah, Age 7, a podcast and YouTube channel with my niece, will be premiering soon. After I finish editing this first episode, it's going to go up as a public post at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. That's the place where even a small donation gets you bonus content, early access, and amazing swag. There's one piece of swag coming up that's so amazing, I can't even talk about it yet. So check out the first episode of Science with Savannah, Age 7, which will be posted soon at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. And now, your feature presentation. Humans being visual creatures, the invention of photography forever changed the way we record our history and tell our stories. If you ask people to picture the Great Depression, many of them are going to picture Migrant Mother, the image of an anxious woman with one hand near her face and two small children huddled close to her. It's one of the most iconic images of the 20th century, and it was taken by a woman. My name's Moxie. And this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the preeminent documentary photographers of the 20th century, Dorothea Lange was born Dorothea Nutshorn in May of 1895 in New Jersey. Two events in her childhood would have a major impact on the trajectory of Dorothea's life. Her father left her family when she was 12, which prompted her to take her mother's maiden name, Lange. A bout of polio at seven left Lange partially paralyzed in her right leg. She said of this, It was the most important thing that happened to me. It formed me, guided me, instructed me, helped me, and humiliated me. Following high school, Lang attended the New York Training School for Teachers, but it didn't keep her interest. After briefly working at a photo studio in New York City, Lang decided to pursue photography professionally. She studied at Columbia University before working as an apprentice under several different photographers including leading portrait photographer Arnold Genthy. Lang soon had a successful portrait studio in San Francisco, where she lived with her husband and two sons. Lang's first real taste of documentary photography came in the 1920s, when she traveled around the Southwest photographing Native Americans. With the crush of the Great Depression in the 1930s, she trained her camera on what even her own neighborhood was not immune to, labor strikes, and bread lines. She and her husband traveled extensively together, documenting the hardships they encountered. Lang photographed the people they met, and her husband wrote about them. Of all the commodities in short supply during the Depression, a basic sympathy for one's fellow man was among them. Rather than sympathizing with the plight of the homeless who traveled around desperately looking for work, those who were still living comfortably 
referred to them as Okies or Rhodites, and denied them inclusion in their communities. To many, they were not people, they were problem. Lang helped to humanize them again. In March of 36, people were gathered in a migrant worker camp in Southern California. But the farm's crops had frozen, and there was no work for anyone. 32-year-old Frances Owens Thompson and her family, which included seven children, had been eating the ruined peas from the field and killing wild birds when they could catch them. Lang normally spent as much time as possible with her subjects, but she spent only ten minutes with Thompson. The last of the seven images she took became known as Migrant Mother. Because Lang was working for the Resettlement Administration, a federal agency created to help farmers and agricultural workers move to more productive areas, the photos she took went immediately into the public domain. Neither Lang nor Thompson would ever see a dime from the incredibly popular photo, though it did earn Lang the respect of her peers and moved the Resettlement Administration to send 20,000 pounds of food to the camp. In 1940, Lang became the first woman awarded a prestigious Guggenheim Fellowship. Following America's entrance into World War II, Lang was hired by the Office of War Information to photograph Japanese-American internment camps, as well as to document the 1945 conference that created the United Nations. Lang stayed active during the last two decades of her life, despite increasing health problems. She founded a publishing house, took assignments for Life magazine in such varied places as Ireland and Death Valley, and accompanied her husband on his work-related assignments in Pakistan, Korea, and Vietnam, documenting what she saw along the way. Dorothea Lang passed away from esophageal cancer in October of 1965. Bonus fact, in 1998, Migrant Mother became a 32-cent U.S. postal stamp in the Celebrate the Century series. This was unusual because both of the then-children pictured were still alive, and the Postal Service usually won't issue stamps with people on them unless those people have been dead for at least ten years. While I have you in this brief aside, there may be an increased amount of background noise on today's episode which most podcasters would apologize for. Wind blowing, birds chirping, a certain annoying senior rescue cat... All the doors and windows in the house are open to allow springtime to come in, and I am not apologizing for that one little bit. While Dorothea Lang inarguably paved the way for the current and recent generations of female photojournalists, the road was first cleared by Jessie Tarbox Beals. Beals is known as America's first female news photographer when she became the staff photographer for the Buffalo Inquirer and The Courier in 1902. This was shortly after Kodak issued the folding pocket camera, about the size of a hefty novel like His Dark Materials, and the Kodak Brownie, the first user-reloadable point-and-shoot camera. Beals had done a fair amount of photography with the earlier models of camera, the ones that were as big as her torso. Her tenacity, self-promotion, and willingness to work in situations that were too rough for a woman set her apart at a time when the few women who ventured out of the home into photography exclusively did portraits. Jessie Tarbox was born in December 1870 to a machinist and his wife in Ontario. Her father's invention of a portable sewing machine 
enabled the family to live well until the patents expired in 1877, at which point the father began drinking and his strong-willed wife had to support the family. Jesse became a certified teacher at 17 and taught in Massachusetts, attempting to become an artist until she discovered she had no innate talent. Her life changed the following year when she won a camera from selling magazine subscriptions. During the summers, Jessie offered students at a nearby college four portraits for a dollar, about $30 today, to supplement her income. She made the decision to focus on news photography after attending the Columbian Exposition in Chicago, where the experience of making photographs and meeting other female photographers heightened her fascination with the occupation. Jessie married Alfred Tennyson Beals in 1897. In 1899, her photographs of the local prison were published in a newspaper, although they were uncredited. Beals left teaching in 1900. That September, she received her first photo credit from a Vermont newspaper, making her the first published female photojournalist. In 1902, Beals broke into full-time professional news photography when the editor of Buffalo's two local papers hired her and allowed her to freelance for out-of-town correspondence. She proved her ability to hustle when she got photos of a murder trial that had been declared off-limits to photographers by perching herself precariously on top of a bookcase to shoot through a transom, the little windows above a door. She used a 50-pound 8x10 format camera for her assignments and took pride in her physical strength and agility, as well she may. I'll put a link in the show notes to photos of Beals, one of which shows her with a police officer who is presumably holding some of her equipment, and he's leaning way to one side against the weight of it. If I forget the link or your app doesn't do HTML, you can at me on social media and I'll send it to you. Don't forget, a lot of podcast players will let you share directly from your app. The Overcast app now lets you share a specific clip from the show you're listening to, which Twitter follower at AnImaginaryEcho did this week, sharing a clip she and I could both relate to from last week's episodes on failed utopian societies called We Built This City. Beals's first nationally recognized photograph was, of all things, a portrait of Sir Thomas Lipton, the inventor of the teabag. In 1904, the Buffalo newspapers sent her to the opening of the Louisiana Purchase Exposition in St. Louis, and her husband came along to print her photographs. Beals was initially denied a press pass, but convinced the organizers to let her in so she could photograph the fairgrounds before the exposition opened. Pass in hand, she just stayed after it opened. She climbed ladders and floated in hot air balloons to get her shots ultimately becoming the official photographer for the fair for the New York Herald, the Tribune, Leslie's Weekly, three Buffalo papers, all the St. Louis newspapers, as well as the fair's own publicity department. Beals upended a lot of the way photojournalism was done at the time. She would generate photos for which a writer would later be assigned. She developed several story ideas that did get written, and she anticipated the use of a series of photos in an article rather than the then-standard single image. Beals created opportunities for herself by making pictures of dignitaries attending the fair. 
She interrupted President Theodore Roosevelt on his tour of the fair to make his photograph and just followed him throughout the day, making 30 more. Her aggressiveness paid off when she was given credentials as a member of the presidential party and accompanied Roosevelt to the reunion of the Rough Riders in San Antonio in March of 1905. Work as a news photographer dried up for Beals after she and her husband settled in New York City, so they opened a studio. The American Art News commissioned two women, Beals and Zeta Ben Yusuf, to make portraits of prominent artists. This assignment won approval from critics and colleagues who preferred Beals' style and led to other jobs in major magazines. Beals maintained an art photography element in her repertoire for the next 20 years. Early on, Beals had envisioned an international career for herself. Even though she ended up concentrating on the United States almost exclusively, her interest in being on the road resulted in widely distributed publication in such varied newspapers and magazines as The Craftsman, American Home and Gardens, Bit and Spur, Harper's Bazaar, The Christian Science Monitor, and The New York Times. By 1928, when Beals was 58, she could no longer maintain her frenzied pace. With her daughter Nanette, then 17, she went to California, where the wives of Hollywood executives were eager to have their mansions photographed. This project ended the next year when the stock market crashed. Beals and her daughter returned to New York, where she rented space in a dark room and lived in a basement apartment around the corner from her first New York studio. Even in her 60s, Beals continued to win prizes with photographs of gardens and estates, but she never regained her earlier success. A lifetime of hustling for work had taken its toll on her body, and living lavishly had taken its toll on her bank account. Jessie Beals died in the charity ward of Bellevue Hospital in May of 1942, at age 71. Photography was by no means exclusively an American occupation, least of all because it was invented in France. So let us do what Jessie Beals couldn't and go beyond these United States. When Homai Virwala passed away in 2012 at age 98, it brought to a close her four decades of work as India's first female photojournalist, documenting India's independence and the transition that followed. Born to Parsi parents in December 1913, Homai was the daughter of a theater actor-slash-director father and a mother who actually steered her away from a career in medicine, not wanting her daughter to work long, late-night shifts her whole life. Vyarwala spent much of her childhood on the move because of her father's traveling theater group, but the family eventually settled in Mumbai, then called Bombay, where she attended the J.J. School of Art. In college, she met her future husband, Manek Shah Vyarwala, who introduced her to photography. She received her first assignment to photograph a picnic while she was still in college. It was published by a local newspaper, and she soon began to pick up more freelance work. Vyarawala's early work centered on photographing people of all walks of life around Mumbai, which drew more attention after her photographs were published in the Illustrated Weekly of India magazine. The Vyarawalas moved to Delhi in 1942 to work as photographers for the British Information Service. Homai was one of the scant few female photojournalists working at the time in Delhi, and could often be seen cycling through the capital with her camera strapped to her back.
Virawala stood on the front lines, sometimes literally, of a tumultuous transition from colonial rule to independence. Draped in a sari and lugging heavy equipment, Virawala was usually the only female photographer on scene. Luckily, this was an era when the media had unprecedented access and a real sense of camaraderie. All of us helped each other, she said of her male counterparts in her biography. If someone was changing film, he would request another photographer take an extra picture for him. We even traded negatives, so no one missed out on a good picture. Fiorawala's photos poetically captured pivotal moments in India's history, like the first flag-raising, the departure of British Viceroy Lord Mountbatten, the celebration of the First Republic Day in 1950, and her favorite subject, Jawaharlal Nehru, India's first Prime Minister, whom she described as, quote, the highest authority of the country, and very photogenic. Her work also included candid, close-up photographs of celebrities and dignitaries who visited India, including China's first Prime Minister, Zhu Enlai, Vietnamese leader Ho Chi Minh, Queen Elizabeth II, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and President John F. Kennedy. Fiorawala had the rare distinction of getting to know her high-profile subjects, a relationship she never exploited. Fiorawala's biggest professional regret, she would say in an interview, was missing the meeting where Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated. She was on her way to it when her husband called her back for another work assignment. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. In 1966, when Indira Gandhi became India's Prime Minister, the rules of photojournalism suddenly changed. Delhi photographers had been able to get close to important subjects with minimal effort. I have taken photographs of presidents and prime ministers as close as five feet, 
we were never considered a security menace. From Indira Gandhi's time, we had to stay at least 15 or 20 feet away while taking a picture, noted Virawala. That change in policy that made it impossible to get the candid photos that were such a part of her career, combined with her husband's death a few years later, moved Virawala to hang up her camera, and she retired in 1970. Virawala's story of triumph and commitment would have faded away if it weren't for an inquisitive photographer who noticed a solitary female name in the long list of men in the Press Information Bureau records. He kept inquiring about her, and one fateful day in the early 1980s, she agreed to meet with him, fittingly, at a camera repair shop. It was after 50 years of having taken these pictures that I started to see the value of my work, she wrote in March 2005. I was just earning a living at the time, with no thought of preserving it for posterity. In a country where a great man like Gandhi can be forgotten, why would I be remembered? All I want today is for people, especially the young, to see what it was like to live in those days. The Times of India called her the Grand Old Lady, and mentioned her numerous accolades, including the Padma Vibhushan, India's second-highest civilian honor, which she received in 2010. Speaking of honors, it was another great week for send-ups and shout-outs from your fellow brainiacs. Ryan over at Conspiracy Theoryology Podcast gave me a great plug on his episode on the belief that Finland is a myth created to protect prime fishing grounds, and there isn't even land there. Neville Shane Devar posted on our Facebook page, Each episode is like taking an informative holiday from my weekly grind. And thanks to everyone who shared pictures of their pets on the post from Adopt a Shelter Pet Day. We got some great Twitter love from at Seanus123, who retweeted the episode post and commented, I think this was my favorite episode ever. Hard choice to make, but this one was immensely interesting. I'd only ever heard of the Shakers. All the rest of the societies you spoke of were completely new to me. Now I understand why Chris Traeger wanted an octagonal house. That's Rob Lowe's character on Parks and Rec. And you can reach me all of these ways, Facebook and Instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts and Twitter at brainonfactspod. When you have a question or you find a great fact, or you can leave it on my voicemail at 804-404-2669. And my fellow introverts, do not worry. This is voicemail only. I won't pick up. Just as Homai Vyarawala documented India's transition from British rule to independence, Suneka Sasamoto, considered Japan's first female photojournalist, recorded her nation's dramatic shift from a totalitarian regime to an economic superpower. Sasamoto's subjects ranged from impoverished citizens in the lean post-war years, to students protesting and workers striking in the turbulent 1960s, to independent-minded women born in the Meiji era who struggled against the deeply entrenched sexism of their culture to find their own voices. And as far as I can tell, Sasamoto is still alive, and still shooting, at least as of age 101, when she had an exhibit open and was working on her second book. Asked by a reporter if she carries her own equipment, she nodded. Cameras have become much lighter lately. They're easy to carry around. Sasamoto prefers the old mechanical cameras, 
but she has made the switch to digital, though she admits it can be difficult to understand all the different functions on the camera. Born in 1914 in Shinagawa Ward, Tokyo, Japan, Suneko's father was a kimono dealer. He was staunchly against her early dreams of being a painter or a novelist, but Suneko's mother allowed her to attend an art institute without her father's knowledge. Her progressive mother would also later deflect relatives' attempts to arrange a marriage for Suneko. When a job as an illustrator fell through, she was offered a job as a photo agent in the new Photography Foundation, established during the Second Sino-Japanese War in 1939. The idea of being Japan's first female photojournalist resonated with her deeply, despite the fact that she'd barely even held a camera at that point. Despite claims of youthful shyness, Sasamoto often acted boldly. At a shoot with a foreign dignitary, she messed up a photograph. Normally that would mean getting no photo at all, but Sasamoto went up to one of the prominent people involved, and in the best English she could, asked if they would let her take the picture again. This risky move paid dividends. Word got around of a female photographer who spoke English, and she began to get specific assignments to shoot foreign dignitaries. In those years, before the electric flash, photographers had to pack as many flash bulbs as they could carry, plus the heavy camera and other equipment, and they could only take as many photos as they had flash bulbs. But that wasn't the biggest inconvenience Sasamoto faced. What troubled me most, she recalled, was the fact that women had to put on a skirt and high heels when they worked which was no help at all when she had to climb step ladders to shoot from a high angle. This, of course, paled in comparison to the sexist and discriminatory comments from officials and bureaucrats she was trying to shoot. What's more, her father and brother worried about her working late at night, and her brother urged her to give up work and get married before it was too late. Sasamoto did marry, and then divorced in her thirties, because her career as a busy freelancer meant she could not spend time with her husband. Her second marriage, years later, would end when her husband passed away. There's a strange gap in the research here. We sort of go from Sasamoto's 30s to her being 100. I couldn't find anything in between. So we'll rejoin Sasamoto at age 101. Living alone, Sasamoto carefully looks after herself, swearing by a glass of red wine every night and a piece of chocolate every day. I also eat a lot of meat, she says. People say old people shouldn't eat meat because it's bad for their health, but that's not true. Getting old is rough, even for strong, independent women. In the span of a year, Sasamoto broke both legs and a hand. But even while undergoing physical therapy... She kept herself busy photographing flowers for a tribute to a friend who passed away. In 2017, Suneko Sasamoto received the Lucy Award for Lifetime Achievement, a sort of Oscars for photographers, in recognition of her long career. Ms. Sasamoto's lifetime work has been focused on taking pictures of independent-minded women who have struggled through the hard times of the Meiji era when women did not have as much freedom or much choice in life. You can't talk about photojournalism without talking about war, and we have more potential subjects here than such an advanced species should. We'll go with photojournalist and war correspondent 
Dickie Chappelle, who was born Georgette Louise Mayer in March of 1918 in Wisconsin. By the age of 16, she was attending aeronautical design classes at MIT. She worked at a local airfield, hoping to become a pilot. However, her mother found out she was having an affair with one of the pilots there and forced Georgette to move to Florida to live with her grandparents. She found work there writing press releases for local air shows. That job took her to Havana, where she witnessed a Cuban pilot crash during an air show. She rushed to a payphone and landed a story in the New York Times. Eventually, she moved to New York, where she met her future husband, Tony Chappelle, and began working as a photographer for Transworld Airlines, which kicked off her photography career. It was after her divorce 15 years later that Georgette started going by Dickey. She took the name from Admiral Richard Dickey Bird, who had spoken at her high school. Despite middling photographic credentials, and at a time when most editors would not send women into war zones, Chappelle managed to convince the Navy to allow her to cover the front lines of the Pacific Theater in World War II, and followed Marines into the deadly battles of Iwo Jima and Okinawa. Chappelle accompanied Fidel Castro into the jungles of Cuba. She was smuggled into Algeria by rebels to cover their side of the story in their war with France. She made parachute jumps into conflict zones in Korea, Vietnam, and the Dominican Republic. During the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, she was imprisoned for two months in Hungary and probably escaped execution by stuffing her tiny camera into a glove and tossing it out a window on the way to her interrogation. Through her career, she reported from Japan, India, Jordan, Iran, Iraq, Cuba, Algeria, the Dominican Republic, Lebanon, Korea, Laos, and Vietnam. She learned to jump with paratroopers and usually traveled with the troops. This helped to earn the respect of both the military and the journalistic community. Though Chappelle would still be on the receiving end of things like, Get that broad the hell out of here. Chappelle was a tiny woman, five foot nothing, known for her strong will and her signature uniform. Fatigues, an Australian bush hat, dark-rimmed glasses, and pearl earrings. Dickie Chappelle left the United States for Vietnam in 1961. After a trip to Laos where she observed unacknowledged CIA operatives in combat, Chappelle realized that nobody back home had a clue what was really going on in Southeast Asia. She tried repeatedly to report on what she was seeing, but nobody was buying her dispatches. After a number of failed attempts to discredit Chappelle, the government used a different tactic to silence her. They put her to work for the CIA, and 800 of her photographs disappeared. On November 4, 1965, while Chappelle was traveling with a patrol in Vietnam, the Marine lieutenant walking in front of her hit a tripwire, setting off an explosive booby trap made of a mortar shell and a hand grenade. Shrapnel severed Chappelle's carotid artery. Georgette Dickie Chappelle became the first female American war correspondent killed in action. Her last moments were captured in a photograph by Henri Hewitt, including the chaplain giving her the Catholic sacrament of last rites. You can see her pearl earring. Her bush hat lays nearby. Her body was repatriated with an honor guard of six Marines and given full Marine burial. In October 2016, Chappelle was officially declared 
an honorary U.S. Marine. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. This was another topic where I ended up with more subjects to cover than I started with. Like Gerda Taro, a German-Jewish war correspondent active during the Spanish Civil War, who is regarded as the first female photojournalist to die in the front lines of a war. So keep your earballs open for part two, maybe even a part three, somewhere down the road. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And a happy belated birthday to superfan Michael K. I can't sing you happy birthday, not because it's copyrighted, because it's not, I'll talk about that someday, but because I have a singing voice like baby's first bagpipe. Nobody wants to hear that. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.